Hello, and welcome to the How to Make a Film podcast. My name is Dan Freeman, and I'm in Britain. And my name is Sean Hurley, and I'm in New Britain. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm okay. I got, bizarrely, I've got, I got bitten by an insect that was so small that I didn't notice. And now I've got an enormous swelling on my leg, and I am having to take antibiotics. And the, the type of bug is not known? I mean, is it a, a spider or a bee? Or? It's the sort of characteristic of the British fauna that we don't have anything dangerous. Huh. We have vipers. You don't see them very often, and you get bitten by them very, very rarely. I mean, you hardly have a viper. We, we only yeah. use that as a reference to like a mythological <laughs> creature. Is that a type of snake, though? Yeah. A viper. Yeah, what do you call them? A viper. An adder. Do you call them adders? No. Does, is viper a catch-all term for for a snake, or is this specific? No, it's a, it's a type. Is the I think it's the only poisonous snake we have in Britain. Huh. In the fields around here, we get grass snakes, which are just very beautiful and completely harmless. Um, they they just come up to you and like give you little things, don't they? Those little pieces yeah, of right. grass. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they're known for. Here's a grass, Hello. sir. <laughs> Thank you, grass snake. Yes. And then the viper bites you. <laughs> I've got uh, quite exciting things have happened. Spent all week making uh, this creature called an avank with the art department on the film. Oh, very exciting. And an avank is a mythical uh, Welsh water creature. Like a viper. Uh, it's <laughs> so the artists have been creating and uh, it's it's been very exciting and I've you know I mean I've say we've been doing it all week they've been doing it I've just been going yeah I think the eyes should be bigger and they've been sort of, you know. <laughs> that's what the director's supposed to do yeah you just come in yeah. and you say uh, you know what how about how about a little less red <laughs> but that must be exciting for them to be sort of whole cloth creating a creature you know that doesn't have rules I think it is yeah I mean yeah. it's bizarre that you because the, the 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 artist made it, and then the cre- the um, creature effects guys going, well, where's where's its nostrils? And mm. we're going, oh yeah. And <clears> then we're thinking, actually, no, we want it to look cool. It doesn't have to be really coherent. I think those those are those are the interesting discussions. You know, when you start talking about like where are the nostrils, and then you're like, well, maybe maybe they don't have them, or maybe it's you know, you start. Mm. I don't know. That's that's where it really starts taking taking shape and hold mm. have you have you ever have you ever worked on anything with a monster in it um <clears throat> no i mean we did work on game of thrones for a while mm. i remember i remember that um that scene i mocked up with my son for you oh yes <laughs> you thank you so much yeah that was uh, so i worked with steve conrad and he was for a little while working on one of george r, r. martin's uh novella series I had an idea that I wanted to pitch to Steve on how we should take it. And I, when I do have ideas, I often turn them into videos for Steve. And Dan and his son <laughs> helped me with an animation that I made to help sell my idea to Steve, which didn't work. Uh, but it was through no fault of yours. Was... I think it worked brilliantly, actually. <laughs> no, no, I mean in terms of selling it to Steve as a concept for... Think, how we should how we I should go steve, didn't steve i thought steve liked it and george rr R. didn't or george no steve liked it but he gets he had his own idea you know mm. I, I it's it's often the case where you're trying to you know i'm i'm sort of hoping maybe he doesn't have any ideas and he wants <laughs> he's looking for something and so i will provide what i how i really see it how i really would love, like to take it 
Um, you know, and you, that doesn't usually happen in a, in the big type of way. You know, like we were working on Time Bandits um, mm. for a little while. And I had a whole vision for Time Bandits, <laughs> which I turned into a video, like 10 minutes long. And it was all about how um, uh, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, Brazil, and Baron Munchausen <clears throat> actually were part of one world and part of Terry Gilliam's world. And, and Time Bandits was Terry Gilliam as a child. Uh, Brazil was Terry Gilliam as a middle-aged man. And Baron Munchausen was him as, a, as an old man. And so my pitch for, for the Time Bandits was to make use of this kind of concept and that we'd actually move through all three of these worlds of Terry Gilliam's. Um, and I loved it so much. And Time Bandits was huge. I loved Time Bandits when I was young. Mm, and I still I love it. I just mm. thought it was, it was so magical to me. Um, but, you know, and I, Steve loved my pitch, but also himself, he had his own ideas, like his own way that he wanted to take it. But anyway, I love pitching things in sort of video form, despite the fact that, you know, I'm pitching them to somebody who's himself full of ideas. I want to chip in to explain that thing, because that pitch, <clears throat> that idea, when we were doing the... The Game of Thrones thing that was that that was the idea was that the knight was trying to test a young boy who was secretly of noble birth to see if he could maintain his peasant guise and not defend his mother's honor. So, right. what that ended up what, what that actually ended up being was me shouting abuse at my son about his mother going your mother's that and him having to go go sort of agree with it i love so. it wasn't i felt like i felt like he that excited you <laughs> oh it excited more me than happy I, to do it oh yeah it was great fun but it was for my son it was just the absolute best thing ever he loved oh, it he, so it's good. Just, i'm still very thankful for that thank you Oh, it was a great pleasure. The one one day we'll write something together, and that'll be that'll be brilliant. That would be, but we first yeah. have to go to the Badger. We do we do have to go to the to the pub. This is a dream. This is a long time dream that we've had. Yeah. Which is, to, Dan has a local pub called the Badger, which I only I just imagine it, just in the middle of a, like a beautiful, dense field, empty field, gray and rocks, and it's just a little stone hobbit hut. And there's a fire in there, and there's just like dirt falling from the ceiling, and, and just charming old people raising glasses and cheery cheeked. And is that what it's like? <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not that far off. <laughs> okay, good. The badger. Yeah, I mean, this this uh, this this week that's sort of leading up to Christmas. I'm just you know, it's dark here and it's cold and it's wet, and I'm just dying to go to the pub and just sort of throw off all cares and just sit there with the the old boys in there and, and have a pint of plum porter which is deadly but god plum porter that yeah. doesn't sound real that sounds so bilbo baggins <laughs> i mean it, it, yeah you you always say this about everything i tell you uh, I know. I, I, <laughs> but no i mean you know we basically live in in the uh, in in middle earth but uh i mean there's there's they keep thinking things, seeing things, or hearing things. And I think I must tell Sean that's a real thing. But, yeah, um, you often will. You often will write me little messages, like you yeah. write the name <laughs> of like several towns 
and just say, yeah. these are real names. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, you know, we don't have that. We have nothing equivalent to the pub experience here. You know, I spent some time in Ireland, and so I, I got to sense that, oh, this is an, ex you know, people go in here, they kind of know people, they kind of don't know people, but it's a different uh, atmosphere than like a bar mm. in America. It's it's a more of a community area. I've got something else to tell you that's exciting. That, um, so so far we have insect bite, mm. a vank, yeah, um, our dreams of the badger. Were you about to give us another announcement? I was going to give you another announcement because last mm. night I went to see um, Macbeth. Oh my gosh! Yeah, in Liverpool. Rafe Fines. Yeah, Rafe Fines and Indira Varma. And it was really good. It was kind of is in a sort of warehouse. As you go in. There's a kind of industrial uh, wasteland and rubble everywhere and a burnt out car. I mean, this is what Liverpool is like generally. But this is the set. Yeah. It's a, like a, a, a sort of a post-apocalyptic or very, yeah, modern war. And they had some of the cast standing around on guard, you know, with their hands behind their backs, uh, their legs apart like military and it was brilliant. I mean, it was it was so good. Were you seated? I'm picturing you standing up in this warehouse. Or were you seated? Or how was how was we the, were seated? You were the tickets were That's really deep. cheap. They were fifteen quid. Wow, for Ray Fines. For Ray Fines. I, but I was sat behind the tallest man in Britain. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what What have you been? You give us some news. What What have you been doing? I'm trying to figure out what to do next, and it's very difficult. I feel like. I don't know, you know, I'm trying to find things to write and I, I'm just... I was hoping that you would write something for the Secret Planet website because I've just kind of set up this area where you can send in reports of your explorations of the Secret Planet. The Secret Planet is a world that was discovered in the late 1890s and it was explored by Lady Emmeline Locke, who was the, the discoverer of it. And she wrote a journal of it. But we're opening it up so that other explorers can send in their, their notes, their expedition report. Is this almost like, <clears throat> like the old-fashioned National Geographic a gentleman traveler yeah. sending back his, um, his notes to the, the dusty uh, group? sitting in london it's exactly like who that. financed yeah. this journey yes i i love that i would i would do that right as a story i mean write a report i feel as a writer person i don't write anything that i that i don't want to either speak or have spoken like if i sent in a report i, I would like to like speak it you know i'd like mm. to deliver it or is there any way to do that or is it just like yeah that would be great i mean i think okay I wonder if because you've got, um, because you then expanded into radio and you then TV, I mean, maybe you've got greater scope and you've got more tools in your box now, haven't you? So um, I think we should introduce at this point our new, we, we, we've come up with a feature for this podcast. Oh, yeah. And the feature. A dangerous is, one. It's my idea. So I'm it's naming. It's Dan's idea. Uh, so if it's not good, it, it's Dan's fault. <laughs> it's called Fraudulent Film Reviews. Now, this is where... One of us asks the other one to review a film they haven't seen yet. The idea came for this came from um, I knew somebody who had had a show reviewed really badly by someone. 
so this journalist said, oh, it was an embarrassing, it was so embarrassing, the audience were bloody blah And it turned out the journalist hadn't been to see the show at all. That's so low. It is so That's low. a viper. It's, and uh, what's happened here is I have asked Sean to review a film that he hasn't seen. He has no knowledge of it apart from he's seen the image and he knows the title. So here... I, I, never, had, I never heard of it either. Okay, you didn't. Yeah, you, is it is it a well-known movie? Um, I can't remember what movie it was because I'm very old. It's the ritual. The ritual. I remember it quite well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've, now that I've uh, come up with what I think it is, I have a. I'm, uh, it was really good too. I loved it. Right. Well, here's your <laughs> review of it. Here's fr- Sean's fraudulent film review of the ritual. Warning. This is a fraudulent film review. The following film, The Ritual, ritual. has not been seen by the following reviewer, Sean. Sean. Sean has neither seen The Ritual nor heard of The Ritual. He has very little money and has only glanced at the movie poster. It should be noted that Sean has very poor vision, in addition to being poor, unworldly, and an outcast. It here is his fraudulent film review of The Ritual. Paul Rudd, Viggo Mortensen, Kevin Spacey, and John Turturro star in The Ritual. A bleak homage follow-up sequel of sorts to 2011's Liam Neeson survival horror film The Grey, about a group of oil men stranded in Alaska after their plane crashes, leaving them to fight both wolves and each other, all while being terrorized by the gray itself, which might be referring to the sort of dim light they have up there, hence the title. The Ritual is a redemption story that follows the four now grown-up children of the oil men who died in the gray as they set off into the Alaskan wastes to find the bodies of their fathers and hopefully to each kill a wolf. Their goal, just to be clear, and stated at the outset, in a group voiceover of an email chain the men share, is to find and bury their fathers while also killing a wolf to bury alongside them in a sacred ceremony of closure that they come to call the ritual. Things, of course, go poorly right from the start. In an eerie bit of deja vu, their plane crashes into the Alaskan wilderness, just like their father's plane. To their shock, horror, and then eventual gratitude, however, the men discover that they've crashed not only into the awful gray area their fathers crashed, but directly into their father's crashed plane. Which leads to the now famous catchphrase from Kevin Spacey, uttered as the four men are sifting through the wreckage of their plane, as Spacey lifts a rusty old plane wing from the snow and says, Guys, this isn't our plane wing which leads Viggo Mortensen into the second most memorable line in the film. We fucking crashed into our own daddy's crashed fucking plane. Fuck. And then to the third most memorable line from Paul Rudd. What are the odds of that kind of daddy crash plane thing? And to the fourth from John Turturro, which makes better sense when you learn, as I did, that his part was meant to be played by Jeff Goldblum. There aren't odds for that. I mean, sure, mathematically, I could tell you the odds are 17.2 billion to something approaching zero. But this is life, not math. This is one, not zero. 
And of course, the reason Jeff Goldblum isn't in the ritual as one of the four sons is that he was in the original The Grey with Liam Neeson and was a coward and died in that movie very early on and which film he regrets making because he didn't come off well. Or, as he says, I didn't seem very Goldblummy in that one. At any rate, as the four sons, concussed and bleeding as they are, begin to wrestle with the lonely, awful spookiness, as Paul Rudd calls it, of the son plane crashing into the father plane, suddenly Paul Rudd realizes something else. Guys, he says, this is actually perfect. To which Vigo Mortensen spits blood and says, What the fuck are you talking about, cowboy? We crashed into our daddy's fucking plane. How is that perfect? Exactly, Paul Rudd says. But he whispers it in such a way that you don't think anyone else heard it, because it's so very, very, very windy in this gray. But they did hear it, you realize, as Kevin Spacey says, No, guys, he's right. We couldn't have crashed into anything better. Whereupon, John Turturro tries to mutter the following comic, PG-13 line, as only Jeff Goldblum could. Well, I don't know about that. We could have crashed into Dolly Parton's chest. Which gets a laugh both from the concussed men and the audience, and is the sort of brilliant, sexy kind of comedy that allows for what in film circles is called a distransient, which means that because everyone is now thinking about Dolly Parton's anatomy, the filmmakers can sort of gloss over all the health concerns the men have been contending with. And so you'll see that immediately after the Dolly Parton line, all the men are healed and back to normal, no longer concussed, and all the blood trickling from their noses and scalps has just disappeared, and even their clothing is brand new and no longer torn and scorched from the crash. This to avoid any long, boring scene where they have to tend to their wounds or change into new clothes, and allows them to get concussed again later on and have facial bleeds, and also means that we can track their progress following the plane crash by means of their increasingly damaged outfits. Before setting off to find the bodies of their fathers, they begin to put on their backpacks awkwardly, to show how unprepared they are, even to put on a backpack, let alone survive the same miserable gray their fathers didn't. And it's here that we have a bit of comedy, as Paul Rudd tips over from the weight of his backpack, which is largely full of Slim Jims, which Slim Jims are revealed as he tumbles into a crevasse head first, and all the Slim Jims fall out into the void. All this while Vigo Mortensen goes sliding hundreds of yards along an ice patch due to the heft of his backpack, which is full of grain alcohol, before they all head out deeper into the gray, just as their fathers did. During this downtime section of traveling somewhere, each man tells a story about fishing with his pappy. It's also here, and importantly, that the language around fathers shifts no longer are they referred to as dads or fathers, but they are now pappies, which seems to be a term of great endearment to each of their semi-orphan boys. Their mothers are all alive and well, but they feel the loss of their pappies so strongly they each self-describe as semi-orphaned. 
One time, long ago, before I became a semi-orphan, my pappy took me fishing along the old canal. Paul Rudd's pappy reminiscence begins. I remember the first time my pappy took me fishing, Vigo Mortensen says. Threw me in the fucking ocean and drove away. Was it a car? Paul Rudd asks. But Vigo ignores him. Threw me in the fucking ocean with nothing but a hook in my hand. He put the hook in your hand? Like you were bait? Paul Rudd says. Vigo ignores this too. In fact, he ignores Paul Rudd for the rest of the film, which actually proves very satisfying and has become, in retrospect, one of my favorite parts of the film. That's how he taught me how to fish for shark, Vigo concludes. Good thing you went last, John Turturro says, and it's really his best delivery of a Jeff Goldblum line in the film, because the other men's stories about fishing with their pappies turned out to be quite mild when compared to Vigo's pretty intense one. Now, at this point, all four men are shivering, and strangely, perhaps because of the length of this sequence about fishing with their pappies, they are all soaking wet. And so they decide to set up Ice Station Zebra, Camp One, as they call it. They make a fire using a combination of icicles and snow and a chemical that only Jeff Goldblum could have invented called Snow Spark that allows you to set fire to anything frozen. I'm glad you invented Snowspark, bro, Paul Red says to John Turturro, but I wish you could have done something about the color. Because the firelight from the snow and ice blazing along due to the magic of Snowspark is not cheery and warm and yellow and gold and red, but the eerie luminescent purple of a black light. And it's here that a kind of giggle fit overtakes the soaking wet men as the only thing they can see of each other in the very blacklit gray is their glowing white teeth. And that's when Jeff Goldblum, and you forget here, it's John Turturro because all you can see is teeth, that's when Jeff Goldblum spots the chilling addition of a fifth set of glowing teeth. Guys, he says, there are five mouths here. And according to my best recollection of the plane manifest, there are only four of us. Thankfully, it's just their grizzled old bush pilot, Nick Nolte, who the four men had completely forgotten about in their concussed, we crashed into our father's plane, state of bewilderment. Nick Nolte tells them all to fuck off, and then sits miserably down beside the crackling ice and snow of the blacklight fire. After explaining the science of Snowspark, they then each tell Nick Nolte an abbreviated version of their fishing stories, which is probably the reason Nick Nolte ends up as wet as he does. But when Nick Nolte doesn't seem charmed by tales of fishing with Pappy, fuck off is all he says again, they ask why he's being such an old cuss. And that's when Nick Nolte tells them that he's been a bush pilot in this miserable frozen wasteland since he was a baby duck. And the only good thing out here is a dead thing. And the only thing out here beside that is death and more death. On that foreshadowing note, they go to bed. And when they wake up, Nick Nolte is mysteriously gone, which prompts Paul Rudd to reveal a secret. Guys, he says, I didn't want to say because I didn't understand it, but I checked his pulse at the crash site. Our pilot's neck pulse? 
and there wasn't one. Our pilot died in the crash. Which prompts John Turturro to confess, Guys, I didn't want to confess this to you last night, but that wasn't our pilot. That was Max Amsterdam. He was the pilot of our pappy's plane. He died in that crash 20 years ago. I know his widow. She plays tennis with my friend Albert. Hating all this mumbo-jumbo crap, Viggo Mortensen heads off on his own into the by now very grievous gray. You guys can sit here and chit-chat like a couple of boozers down at highballs, he says. But I got a pappy to find and a wolf to behead. Because I mean to complete this, the ritual, or die trying. Jason, the three men follow Vigo Mortensen up and ever up until John Turturro reveals to the group that Vigo is actually taking them up K-7, one of the tallest mountains in Alaska without an official name. It's actually much taller than McKinley, John Turturro says. But they only found that out later after they made such a fuss about McKinley being the tallest. But there's a federal law called the Loophole Law that means if Alaska officially doesn't name K-7, then K-7 doesn't actually exist, and Alaska can continue to say McKinley is the tallest. Is that what they did with K-7? Paul Rudd asks. But they did fucking name it, Kevin Spacey interrupts. Otherwise, how in the world would we be calling it K-7? Jeff John Goldblum Turturro tells Kevin Spacey that K-7 is a geologic designation which means it's not on any real map, just on the handmade maps of geologists and oil men and the few crazy hermits that live up here. The maps of our pappies, Kevin Spacey says, none too happy. Pappy mappy, Paul Rudd chirps, all too happy. Which is what Paul Rudd is, in fact, very simply and essentially and enthusiastically. Paul Rudd is nothing but all too happy. Yet this news becomes increasingly painful to the men, especially Kevin Spacey, who finally breaks down, saying, We're hiking up the tallest mountain in Alaska, which means we're hiking up the tallest mountain in the world. A mountain that has no name and doesn't exist except on children's crayon maps. Which means, gentlemen, we aren't anywhere anymore. Which means we aren't anyone anymore. How can we find someone somewhere when we ourselves are four no-ones in one nowhere? It's a staggering bit of ghostly philosophy that only Kevin Spacey could deliver. Just then, Viggo Mortensen disappears into a pitch-gray snowstorm. Now, at this point, we are two hours into this epic sequel of sons searching for pappies, and you really do get the feeling that time is running out. At the top of the mountain, which is really quite sharp, it's like a needle up there, and in fact, John Turturro catches a snow moth, which he then pins on the summit needle like a butterfly in a butterfly collection. They stop for the night. Ice Station Zero, Camp Two, they call it. There's no sign of Vigo since he disappeared into the snowstorm. Just as they're realizing how fatally long Vigo has been gone, suddenly he shows up, and he's frozen almost to death. He's shrouded in a blanket of ice and has a tall pile of snow on his head that looks remarkably like K-7 in miniature. He falls down before them like a frozen statue of an ice man. 
That's when they all realize they are, each one of them, encased in ice. The fire from the snow spark was not just ice on fire, but itself burned colder than the ambient frigid air. Ice burns cold, not hot, Turturro says tragically. And as wet as they were from their fishing stories, each man was soon covered in ice. So then, one by miserable one, they topple into each other like glass ornaments. Clink, 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 and then fall over like buildings made of ice cubes. They lay together like this, the four men, the four boys, the four frozen bros, only their eyes capable of life darting this way and that. And that's when the four ghostly faces of their pappies appear overhead. Happy pappy, Paul Rudd says. Crappy pappy, Viggo Mortensen says. Snappy pappy, Kevin Spacey says. And then after a while, John Turturro says it too. But not only are the pappies not ghosts, but they have long hair and great mountain beards and are wearing polar bear skins because they never died. They've lived in this gray wasteland for the last 20 years, surviving only on snow and ice and every cold thing. Howdy, son, each of the pappy says. And then Jeff Goldblum, John Turturro's cowardly pappy, who we gathered during Turturro's fishing story, had been working on Snowspark at the time of his death, and which work had been brought to fruition by John Turturro just in the nick of time, Jeff Goldblum says, Proud of you for taking us to the end of the line with Snowspark. And even as he's saying this, He's squeezing out long streamers of the petroleum-based snow spark over the four fallen suns. And then the four old pappies, with four old matches, set their four frozen boys alight. And the movie ends with them giggling at the sight of their glowing white teeth in the black light of their burning suns. And as we fade out, seeing less and less of their smiling white teeth in the very black of the gray, a fifth set of teeth arrives, and it's Nick Nolte, we realize, the dead pilot, and he says, Now it's time. And Liam Neeson says, For what? And Nick Nolte says, The ritual. And the movie ends, and everyone is crying, and it's a five-star movie so for me. Have you have you actually seen The Ritual now? I still don't know anything about it. <laughs> okay, no. Great. Well, maybe we should. And I, leave I it don't. Away. I. I don't. I don't think I. I want to at this point. I mean, it's. It's interesting when you on purpose don't know something about something, and then you sort of spend a little time imagining things about it. Mm. You. You sort of lose interest in what it was. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, not. Yeah. Not. Not, not, not completely. I mean, I'm still a little bit like, hmm, I wonder what that was. But it's almost like something that went past me, you know, and is in my past. Mm. And I've had an experience with it, and it was a, enjoy, an enjoyable experience of nonsense and make-believe. Um, but then that is more my experience with the ritual than the movie will ever be, I think. Unless it was somehow, you know completely something that was made for me right up my alley and I would love it you know <laughs> so much and but if it's just a regular old movie about whatever then mm, I don't need okay know. let's li that's a good idea so you are you going to give me one for next week what what's what's my reviewing? I, 
I am, but I... Uh, I kept thinking of movies that I thought maybe you'd know. Um, did you ever see uh, Lassa Hallstrom's My Life as a Dog? No, I haven't seen it. So... Let's... Okay, I will send you. I'll send you the um, the movie poster image for that. Okay, and then you have to come up with what it is, uh, and w- how great a film it is or not. I'm going to review it. That's the that's the whole thing. You're going to so fraud- the... do a fraudulent film review for next week. All right, exciting. Oh. Mit Lief sund Hund, <laughs> which is the uh, original. Well, that was poorly done. So I apologize to. All of our Swedish listeners. I might, I might re- if, review it in Swedish. If you can do that, no uh, you'll be the win- winner of fraudulent films. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this holiday episode of How to Make a Film. Our great thanks to former listener, now producer slash editor, Julia Dahm, for stepping so elegantly in and making this episode sound as sleek and sensible as it does. Thank you, Juliet. As Dan will be doing his fraudulent film review of My Life as a Dog in our next episode, we'd like to invite you to do your own fraudulent film review. Record on your phone, or however you like, and send your audio file along to us at podcast at secretplanet.co.uk. It doesn't have to be My Life as a Dog. Just find the movie poster of a film you've never seen and blast off into the great lightning storm of confectionery nonsense. Sign up for updates on Dan's upcoming film, Hold Excalibur, at secretplanet.co.uk. Send any questions to podcast at secretplanet.co.uk. How to Make a Film is hosted by Dan Freeman and Sean Hurley. Produced, edited, and much improved by Juliet Dahl.